Welcome to Practice in Public. We're your hosts. I'm Mars the Pessimist. And I'm Casey the Optimist. We're in a relationship and have failed multiple times at many things. I'm interested in having difficult conversations about failure. And I'm interested in what happens after you fail, stories of courage, and how mistakes can become lessons. We want to embrace the tough stuff and talk to people about parenting fails, relationship fails, making friends in your mid-30s. I want to talk to everyone about everything. Okay. So thank you for taking time out of the evening to chat with us. Yeah. Can you tell us, first of all, how to pronounce your name properly? Because I have always said Faustina, but we heard it said Faustina the other day. Yeah, it's like Faustina or like Faustina, like is the, like the usual Ghanaian pronunciation. And Faustina is like the like the European phonetic pronunciation. But then I've heard Faustina before, but like I'm really not bothered by any of that. You can just say whatever you want. It's really like not a big deal for me. Yeah. <laughs> All right, cool. Yeah. But like my surname is a goalie, like a soccer goalie. And yeah. um and often people say agile and it sounds like ugly. To me and I'm like oh that's like not how you pronounce my surname. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds so close to ugly like, I'm like yeah. that's not cool that's like an easy uh like schoolyard mishap way yeah yeah I've had a few of those too. yeah um so you and Casey might actually know each other from a past life yeah I don't know if you remember, but we did a couple of modeling jobs back yeah. in the like Target okay. bread and butter work. Ages ago, like yeah. ages ago. Yeah. How long have been since? Oh, turbulent. <laughs> yeah. To say the least. Oh. And from the sounds of it, so has yours. But, yeah. Um, yeah, so, like, one of the things, like, I I started to, because we were like, oh, it'd be great to get her on the podcast, and then I started to, like, look a little deeper, and I was like, oh, my God, we've got so much in common. Like, you grew up in Quake. I lived in Dingley. Yeah, right. You went to, um, was it Sacred Heart? Yeah. Yeah, I was at Kilbreeder. No so, way. Yeah, yeah. And then, like, we were both, like, modelling in Melbourne um, and, like, then I listened to your Wheeler Centre speech and I was like, I loved April O'Neil as well, but I had no fucking idea. Like, my brothers just had a doll and I was obsessed with it, but I didn't realise, like, why yeah it's like all the signposts were there but I didn't realise till later on and I was like when you said that I was like oh my god I loved her too and Kylie Minogue as well and then like you've spoken about um like anxiety as well which I have like suffered from for quite a while but I feel like and also like you came out later in life as well same as me, but I feel like growing up, our experiences must have been so incredibly different. So, like, I feel like, you know, as 
a white woman, I would love to kind of like ask you how you would see our, our experiences growing up differently. Yeah. Because there was so the, many the same, but just there's so many things that like parallels. so many parallels, but then, you know, so many of my friends, you know, that I've caught up with later in life have told me about things that I just completely wasn't aware of. Yeah, right. So it's like kind of like the architecture is the same. Yeah. Between yeah. You and I, but like the interior is slightly <laughs> different. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. modeling as well. Like I, you know, I think I probably breezed through that with like just no understanding of of my privilege in that. And for you that must have been quite different. Yeah, that's a good point when you talk about the modeling side of things. It was something that I wasn't hyper aware of. Like there was a lot of naivety growing up and I think it was because I think what's different from me being mixed race and being raised Chinese is and having a very Chinese identity, um, I saw myself more as a Chinese woman growing up or a Chinese girl growing up in Melbourne than I did as a Ghanaian or an African woman. And so I identify more with a lot more, um, I include more of my Ghanaian African side now as I've gotten older. So um, how people saw me as like a black girl or sometimes with my mom as a black girl with this Chinese woman and they can't correlate the, the relationship whatsoever to me was very foreign or alien to me for people to see how they perceived me. I think I just, there was, so with that naivety came a lot of confidence in who I was. So I think in those early bread and butter days when we were doing kind of those sorts of modeling things, you know, I think I was like at an extras agency at the time. Um, I did it, I think, because I, had a very strong knowingness of what my long-term goal was, which was to work in and produce um, television, yeah. just to produce television or to, to host host it. And I just knew that that was going to happen. I knew that that was going to be my through line. So modelling to me was just a stepping stone or just this fun, frivolous thing that would come into the mix. But when I did really feel it, where I was just like, oh, okay, my race really does play a part in this, was when I started to, I flew myself over to Sydney because I re, I made the realisation early on while I think I was at RMIT Uni or at the, my first year at Melbourne Uni where I said to myself, oh, all the work that I need to do is in Sydney, so I need to get myself to Sydney. So as a way of getting some income, I... I thought of going to agencies in Sydney and I think I got a lot of knockbacks as I did in Melbourne. Every major modeling agency knocked me back in Melbourne. And so I don't, I didn't even think I tried. I just went straight to the casting directors. And so I set up meetings with casting directors and one particular casting director said to me, Oh my God, your look, um, you know, I was there with an Afro quite, you know, a lot thinner than um, now I eat more and I don't know, I'm just older. So I think I've just filled out a bit more. And then, um, and she just said, you know, I've got to, I've got to take you to Priscilla's right now. So she drove me to a boutique agency called Priscilla's Model Management. I don't know if it's still around in Sydney. And that was in Potts Point. And then she dropped me off and she said, Priscilla, you need to sign her. And I think 
after that period of time, I think chic modeling agencies just said to me, you know, you have a, you know, a very beautiful look, but you know, your look isn't like what's required in the market. I think those were the kinds of words that they chose. When it's applied to a woman of color though, that's sexist. And so, um, and, and it was true that you didn't see women of color in major advertising campaigns. You didn't see them on, you know, those big ticket items. And I think I remember laughing at the agent at Chic and just going and just because I just didn't care. And I think I had, again, that knowingness that 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 good things were going to happen to me. So I was just like, whatever, that's cool, whatever. And then when Priscilla's wanted to sign me because this casting director was like, you need to sign her. Um, I then got to Chic and then after that, um, you know, they, you know, Anyways, an agency reluctantly signed me, I should say, edit out the sheet. An agent, like a top agent, reluctantly signed me. It, you know, it was kind of because there was this kind of like competition between Priscilla and Sheik. And then I went, um, within the first week, Bonds was doing an open call casting um, at the Arc Factory, which is this big kind of branding advertising agency out of Sydney. And Bonds is one of their major clients. And I showed up to this open casting call, there was this sea of super tall white women. And I think one of the things that I thought about with you, Casey, is that, yes, you do have white privilege, but you're also not six foot, you know, like you're not super tall. I do remember that you were shorter than me, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So I had to, yeah, work pretty hard to just, I just kept knocking. (laughs) Yeah. And I can imagine that would have been really hard for you, like to get into those rooms to be considered for yeah. things because yeah you remember like Papa was saying you're never going to make it you you'll have to do acting because they're not going to accept you in the modeling world yeah and I get I guess I was just I just want to do it so bad that I'm yeah, just going right. to keep trying yeah I kind of just looked at it and just went lol whatever guys <laughs> and so I was in this queue um for this massive queue I'm I'm the only black chick in this massive open call you know and any other woman that was in a boutique agency in a high-end agency was um Sudanese of Sudanese background you know that those were the kind that was the look that they wanted just a Sudanese woman who was had that kind of a look and um I was there with my hair out ripped up jeans my geography textbook and iPod then and I was just the opposite of everybody else in that line. And I remember going in to meet the chief photographer and the branding people, and they were like, "Oh, great, yay!" And I think by that stage, I was in a McDonald's commercial that was airing like crazy, especially at prime time. And they said, "Are you the girl that's in the McDonald's ad?" And I was like, "Yeah." And they're like, "Try this on." And so I thought, "Oh, I'm in for a chance." Like you know, they're making me wear their underwear. And so then they took all these Polaroids and then I got a callback. And then after the callback, I got the job. And it was like the first time, to my knowledge, that Bonds had cast a woman of colour in their 90 plus year history. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact was was because they were launching in London for the first time with that season. And they had billboards and, I guess, in-store stuff up, massive massive versions of it up in Selfridges. And so I shot that campaign with Miranda Kerr and another model named Danielle Marie Grasso, and it was a great experience. But I just, it was one of those things where I'm just like, I just knew 
I just knew, I don't, I, it's not a cocky thing. It's just more of just like, this space is really fun and it fits my energy. And I really feel like I belong in this space. And sure enough, it happened. So in despite what people kept on telling me that it was not going to happen. I don't know why. Yeah. Yeah. So I try and I try and like just have I think more and more, I think it's really healthy to have these conversations of system, like bias and, um, and um, you know, systemic racism and exclusion and, you know, the seat at the table or, you know, dismantling the master's house with the master's tools or, you know, there's all these amazing, very woke sayings and I totally get that. And then there is also the internal dialogue that I am telling myself that the way that I treat myself is how other people are going to treat me. Mm. How did you find, um, to, like, having an Asian mum and that being sort of your primary identity as a kid, did you get any pushback from the Asian community? <clears throat> uh it may have existed outside of it, but the love was so strong within my own family that it didn't matter if, um, you know, there was a double take or heads turned at a, at a yum cha restaurant and people were trying to equate, you know, the two black kids, myself and my brother and yeah. an all Asian family. So because my grandparents loved me so much, I never got a whiff of, you know, um, feeling excluded. I know that they were really shocked when my mum started to date my dad in London and I know that it brought them a lot of shame where they lived in Malaysia at the time but by the time we came or I arrived in 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 the life of the family it was all fine and I think maybe a lot of that uh, love came with the sympathy of my father passing away suddenly when I was a baby so it was let's put aside maybe there could have been I don't know that let's put aside the the prejudice and let's just help our daughter out with her family because they're they're really struggling right now possibly yeah, yeah. um I have an unrelated but uh important question what does Oprah smell like <laughs> What does Oprah smell like? I don't remember what she smells like. She definitely, she definitely didn't smell bad. <laughs> I imagine, I imagine like, she'd like smell something amazing. Like, I don't know. Like I just imagine like cardamom, cinnamon, <laughs> like grounding, grounding. Someone's a little obsessed like, with Oprah. I mean, we all are, but like you're particularly. Well, I just find it really like admirable that you, are, like we read the excerpt from growing up. African in Australia and that you used to watch Oprah a lot and that you eventually like ended up meeting her and and that I don't know just like the follow-up is like so good it's just like yeah I wanted to do this and then it happened yeah 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 it was I just again it was that knowingness I don't know why I have this but like as a kid when I watched her I just felt so connected to her but like everybody feels so connected to her because she has that magnetism but there was, I, the words just fell out of my mouth when I watched Oprah and I, just, you know, as a kid, I just said, I'm going to work for you one day. And sometimes I don't know why I say what I say, but I'm just like, okay, cool. Let's make it happen. <laughs> like uh, by all means necessary. But, you know, that was kind of those things, one of those situations where 
there was only so much I could do and actually it wasn't very much like I couldn't I actually when I went to America for a period of time after video hits and during The Voice I really tried to get my foot in the door with the Oprah Winfrey Network and tried all the kind of tactics that I did to try and get into TV in Australia and none of them worked. Oprah Winfrey <laughs> Fortress is literally a fortress you were either invited okay. Or you don't get in at all. You know what I mean? Like there is like these tiny windows of opportunity that you may get to say hello to her and they go, oh, can I, can I work for you or whatever? But like usually the fortress is shut of, of a person of that, of that, I guess, status. But um, it just, the, like the world's collided in the most bizarre way working with her when I came home from the States one time and it was almost Christmas and I was really like, it was a period of me suffering depression. And um, I got this random Facebook message from a friend who works in touring. She works with like Future Music Festival and with Paul Dainty, who has toured Prince throughout his career, Michael Bublé, John Bon Jovi, Eminem. And he's really admired um, what I've done with, with artists on video hits and he respects that kind of work. and. He was responsible for taking care of Oprah um, for her tour to Australia and um, they just needed somebody to kind of warm up the crowd. And um, Edwina just hit me up and she said, hey, are you in Australia? And I said, yeah. She's just like, oh, we're taking care of Oprah's tour like um, in a few weeks um, and we need somebody to, first they said, we need somebody to MC and warm up the crowd before she gets on, up on stage. And I thought, that is career suicide. Um, why the hell would somebody be talking before Oprah talks? And why would someone listen to the person who talks before Oprah talks? And then um, she said, listen, can we put your name forward? You'd be on top of our list. We just need to send a bio. And I was like, sure. And by that stage, I think I tried with Oprah so much that I just didn't believe it. I was so detached yeah. from that outcome. I was just like, whatever. So I sent over the, the bio and I was like, didn't expect to hear back from her. And then two weeks go by and they've contacted my agent. My agent, David, gets on the phone and he says to me, so this Oprah thing, uh, it's yours if you want it. And, and I was like, oh, my God, this is crazy. But they don't want you to MC. They want you to DJ. And I said, oh, my gosh, that's way better. I can totally <laughs> do I can totally DJ for, for Oprah. And I knew exactly what to play. I was just going to play it like a big wedding. So I already yeah, knew what to yeah. play. I said, yep, 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 cool, cool. And he's like, okay, cool. All right, so the job is yours. So now that um, now that you've said yes, the Harpo team want to meet you um, backstage at Hugh Jackman tonight. You're in Melbourne, right? And I said, yes, I'm in Melbourne. And I, and he's like, can you get there by 4.30 p.m. this afternoon and, and, and meet them? And I said, yes, I can, totally. And he's like, okay, um, somebody will be waiting for you backstage. Bye. And then, like, I get off the phone and I'm like, mom, I got the job, mom, do you want to see Hugh Jackman tonight? She's like, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> so we drive from her place in Clayton down to, down the M1, we go backstage and then I meet like all of her core people, her chief of staff, her head of publicity, like all the people that are part of that inner sanctum fortress <laughs> that I couldn't access for years and years. And um, they were so lovely. Hey, What was that like? Just like. It was surreal. Like, it was so strange. It was like, here I was, she was this dream. 
And now all of a sudden I'm standing backstage of this Hugh Jackman thing where around, you know, those tiny sort of bar tables, those round tables that you stand around. Now I'm standing around this tiny bar table with people that have worked with her for over 25 years talking about like the warm up for the show and connecting with them and getting to know them and, and trying to meet what their needs are for the, for the tour. And they're like, yeah, welcome. And they said, you know, things like welcome on tour, like welcome to the, welcome to the tour. And I'm like, what? This is insane. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, I do not want to get fired from <laughs> this job. Do not screw this up. Do not screw this yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah. No pressure. Yeah. No, no pressure. And they yeah. were like, you know, Oprah's graduating her girls in South Africa right now, but she'll fly in the day before. And rah, rah, rah. I was like, this is hectic. This is so hectic. Wow. But then when oh. I first, uh, you know, properly, because I'd met her once previously in Santa Barbara in California, it was very brief. But when I met her again, um, we spoke and then she remembered the Santa Barbara thing. And then other staff members remembered Santa Barbara and they're like, oh, my God. And then every and she was just really huggy, like she loves to hug and cuddle. So she hugged me a lot. She hugged my mum a lot. She hugged my auntie a lot. And she was... She's a very captivating woman and everybody feels is on their best behavior around her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she has that. And she was just lovely on tour. Like, you know, she'd walk past my room and if I wasn't there, she'd say, hi, DJ Fuzzy's room. Um, and But then when I'd see her, you know, she'd just be very grateful with every exchange and everybody was really nice. And then, you know, there was an after party in Auckland at our last stop and Oprah just kept talking to me about Gail and dancing. <laughs> and 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 she was just really awesome. And then her chief of staff like pulled me over and said, Oh, you know, oh, we've got something to give you. And they gave me this gift. She got she took pictures with all of the crew in Sydney before we left Sydney. It was the last stop in Australia. And then they had that already printed. And then they had this letter, which you may have seen on social media, but it's it's like now um, I got it framed, but um, Oprah wrote this letter on her letterhead and then and like signed it at the bottom and it was oh just thanking all the crew for all their hard work and their hustle and dedication with um, such a short amount of um, time. She said, D Faustina, DJ Fuzzy, like that's how she writes. And then, and she wrote, "Thanks for being, thanks for a beautifully infused lead-in." And then she said, "Behind the scenes of every successful performance is a whole support crew making it look easier than it is. Thank you for jumping in when needed and making the show work in every city in Australia and New Zealand, despite minimal rehearsal. You're hustling to get it done to make smooth transitions, and a seamless show was felt by me, and of course, our audiences in every arena." You have earned a special chapter in my gratitude journal. Blessings to you and your family for the holidays. Oprah Winfrey. Yeah. Wow. Do you feel like you just got like like you just got knighted? Like I feel like that's what it's that's the equivalent. It's like you just like went to Buckingham or like you know you met yeah. God. Like you know, yeah. you know like. I literally was buzzing for like years after that. Yeah. Um, it's like only just like slowly wearing off now, but it's. <laughs> Yeah, she, yeah, she's so meaningful in people's lives. And you could tell, you know, I was, I DJed her VIP session as well prior to her doing the live, before, like live 
thing every night in front of 15,000 people and there was like maybe 2,000 people or less in the VIP um, experience or maybe it was only a few hundred. But they, you know, they got to do a Q&A with her and people were talking about periods of their life where they totally changed because of her show and the words that she shared on her show and the guests that she had on her show. She kept it so real. Um, and I think that that's been, you know, she's, you know, the living, breathing angel on earth right now that's just helping people's lives through, you know, through media, through through television, which is one of our most influential platforms in the world right now. So, yeah, it was it was awesome. It was awesome. It's good to kind of see some, you know, when they say don't meet your heroes, it's okay. You can meet Oprah. She's exactly yeah. like how you see her like in real life and then some she's just so wonderful and generous and the other thing was in that letter within that letter was another envelope and within that envelope I opened it up and it was like um all these a hundred dollar bills and so she had tipped like every crew touring crew member a thousand us cash Whoa. yeah on top of what we had gotten paid I was probably yeah. just Strange that like fell out of her wallet one day, and she was like, "Oh, just give it to the give it to the crew. Yeah. I don't need it." These greenbacks, yeah. whatever. Um, and I went yeah. up to her. You know, Oprah, thank you so much for your note. And she said, "Oh, that's okay." And I said, "Oh, thank you so much for the gift." As in, like you didn't have to. And she said, she looked me deep in my eyes, and she said, "It's all love." <laughs> <laughs> and that's then amazing. Just, cue the it's, tears. Yeah, cue the waterworks. Yeah. It's so good to know that she's like how she is, you know, in real life. Yeah, what like, you think yeah. she's going to be. Did you yeah. have any other role models? Like, like I imagine she was a big one. She but- definitely was the biggest one. Um, and then, you know, there's obviously role models within my family, like my mum. My brother's a big inspiration to me too. He, he teaches me how to think strategically and critically. Um, and, you know, he was so steadfast in his career to, to become a surgeon. So I got a lot of drive from him, I think, uh, rubbed off on me. Um, but I'm trying to think of, like, other people. In terms of public figures, Oprah was the biggest one. Um, obviously, I don't think anything really compares to Oprah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I can't really say. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's other people that I've met. I guess in music there's people that I've met um, that, you know, like a, I, 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 where I liked them as a fan, but then once I got to dig through their stories for video hits, like I loved them even more and respected them even more. And I think, you, you know, when you're a fan kind of can just consuming music, unless you're a super fan, you don't really know much about their lives. Like I didn't really know much about Alicia Keys's live until like I did a week's worth of research. And that's when I got to love her even more. And when I met her, it was amazing. And we had a fantastic conversation. And I think, you know, it's, I think it's quite easy to kind of connect with people once you kind of do the work and you're kind of under pressure to make um, impressions, you know, within 10 minutes or 20 minutes with a person um, to find respect for them. And so I feel like I've, I've kind of gained a lot of wonderful stories and um, really real conversations with people over the years of being a music journalist and 
being able to interview people like Adele and Alicia Keys and Jennifer Hudson is a is a really good one, especially out of what she's gone through. Yeah. Um, an incredible human being, like beautiful, gracious, incredible. Um, trying to think of who else who's was like really present in the time that I was hosting video hits. Like having a look here. Um, yeah, there's like heaps of bands, gossip, that queer band gossip, they were awesome. Um, you know, uh, Australian artists, every single Australian artist was awesome. Sneaky Sound System was awesome. Um, uh, I'm trying to think. Powderfinger were awesome. You know, there's just, everyone's, everyone's generally pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I think I've just been inspired by people just along the way. Yeah. 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 Mindful yeah. of your time. Yeah. Know, we have a whole list of questions, but I don't on. think we're going to get through all of them. How many we... more questions do you have? Well, we typically, when we've done this in the past, it's yeah. it can go on for like three hours mm. because we just spend three hours talking shit the whole time. Yeah. yeah. Um, but obviously, <laughs> being mindful of time, we can do another thirty, and then um, okay. and then to like pack my bags for Sydney. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so we so initially the I don't know if you want to do the, like the theme of the podcast. Like oh yeah, initially the the idea of the podcast was to talk to all different kinds of people about failure, um, and it was born out of um, I don't know, like us <laughs> basically almost breaking up and me like thinking about possibly going back to the states and life just being really rough and really hard and doing a lot of hard work and you're pretty open about dealing with depression and anxiety and all sorts of things like that. Mm -hmm. um, what, so often what we do is we ask people, what does failure mean to you? Yeah, cool. Failure to me means uh, pushing me in the right direction. So it's telling me this is not the place that you need to be right now or this is not the environment you should be in or this particular relationship is super toxic and you need to get the F out like ASAP because this is so not in alignment with who you are and where you need to go. So um, my failures, yeah, they've been brutal at times and I think, you know, suffering depression, um, the root cause being homophobia, um, has you know the days have been super dark there's been days where i'd consider you know i had thoughts of ideation which is awful but the thing that didn't allow me to do the act i guess you have to put a trigger warning on this but was that i always had this thing called like a kernel of hope inside me it sounds really weird but like i always felt like there was this little piece inside me that was really strong and it was it was the all-knowing piece that I, you know, love myself fully and, you know, my dreams are possible and, and you know, I'm, I'm here for a reason and, yes, I am valid. I am so, so valid. And um, everything else at the moment I just need to sort through. Um, now I kind of see failure, you know, when failure, when failure is wrapped up in a toxic relationship i think that that's probably the worst serving of failure to me um because and i don't know if it can be defined as failure but it sure does infect your every silo of your life in every possible way um when you're around somebody who's causing so much drama and so much pain um 
to yourself and to other factors of your life and potentially other friends or family members, that's the worst to me. But um, uh, what it also, though, has taught me is through my life is that I must have boundaries and I must have a, a very strong sense of self in order to see red flags early and avoid that stuff. And, and so I feel like that sort of stuff is like a daily practice. Failure, I think, yeah. is everywhere. Um, and there's also kind of good kinds of failures. I, I'm acting now and I'm in a TV show called Harrow. It's on ABC and it is internationally as well. But, you know, with, you know, that one win comes like 90 rejections, you know, or 90 failures where I've submitted tapes and, you know, maybe like, you know, people have really liked it, but then it goes to somebody else. And I'm very much seeing, getting back to like the earlier part of our conversation, I'm definitely seeing bias and you know the systemic sort of situation in Australia where there is a predominantly white cast or in fact an all-white cast and maybe one person of colour in being cast in these roles yet I'm going for lead roles and I'm just and I'm wondering like you know the tape is flawless what are you talking about you know like what like what is the decision coming down to like I just want to understand the transparency around that but then I also think of like the bigger picture and now in my head I'm thinking oh maybe this is a situation like Lin-Manuel Miranda <laughs> where you know he was writing Hamilton and I think he said to Oprah in Super Soul Sunday recently like you know he'd be playing bit parts for things while writing Hamilton and I think he said to Oprah he's like no one's gonna cast me for the lead role like no one who would cast me for the lead role like you know he's a Latina and so um I am thinking like, oh, maybe that is it because I have ideas in me that I'm working on writing at the moment and I'm really taking a lot of time away from social activities to, to stay in my, in my hub and just continue writing. And there's stuff that I definitely want to create for the screen and I've always wanted to create work for the screen, but now I feel like everything's kind of coming together now and I, and I think, oh, I think the grander reason is because I'm supposed to contribute on a grander level as a creator and creating opportunities for other people to see a different kind of Australia on screen and a different and other worlds on screen that involve different races and more inclusion. So yeah, yeah. that's, I think, is the, the calling. So yes, you know, it might sting that I'm not been cast on the latest hip series that's filming in Australia right now, or, um, you know, but it is it is what it is, you know. And um, I think that there, I always think when there is the knockback, there is a higher purpose for everything, for sure. Yeah. 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 Um, um, I'm, I'm working on a documentary right now that's about, um, it's about depression in the entertainment industry. Oh, wow. And You're a colorist, right? Yeah, I'm a colorist primarily, but, like, I do editing and, like, I kind of have, like, my hands in all things post-production at the moment. Um and like one of the things that one of the actors um, said was, as you know, it, acting and creative arts are really difficult because it's a field that's unlike any other because you get constantly criticized. You get told you're fat, you get told you're not this enough, you're not that enough, but it's also at the same time not as necessarily as fulfilling as other careers. Like, you know, if, if you make, um, 
cakes all day. Like you love that, but like the pressure is not nearly as high ah. for, for creative people because ah. it, it's the, the depression sort of balances out with like the fulfillment, like the emotional fulfillment mm. that you get because it is a creative field because you're, it's an incredibly expressive field that doesn't quite exist the way that it might say in like a doctor's life or a lawyer's life or a, you know, a receptionist life. It's like, it's so intense because you have to be raw all the time and you have to be vulnerable, but also be really strong because you're getting critiqued by people all the time. And sometimes they critique you completely objectively. It has nothing to do with you. Like you saying, you know, you might not have gotten a role and it might have nothing to do with you at all. Mm -hmm. Your personality or like, you know, it's, it's not about you're not good enough. It's just you weren't right at the time. It yeah. wasn't the right time. It wasn't the right place. Mm. So I feel like, yeah, creatively, like, it's just, it's hard and it's difficult. And, and we've all experienced that in all aspects of how we're involved creatively. But at the same time, like, it's fulfilling. Like, I go through this, this period where, and Casey will tell you, I'm constantly like, I should leave, I should go do something else, I need to go be more practical, like, why don't I just go, like, learn how to be a carpenter? Um, uh, can't, but I, like, but then a project will come along and I'll be like, but this is, like, why I want to do, do it. it. Like, yeah. this is why I do it. Mm. Uh, and yeah. I, do you feel like, you know, being, making your own media is your way out of, just like jobbing do you know what I mean like that's how I feel at the moment I'm loaning out somebody described it really well like you're loaning out your time for hire and like your yeah. talent for hire for other people's projects yeah. and it's like bringing it back in and honing it back in and how do you become self-made in your own way like a separate from jobs for hire do you know what yeah. I mean yeah and it's it's hard because there's a lot of I think especially like as women as women of color or at least I, can, I won't speak for you, but like I have a lot of um, imposter syndrome where I constantly think, okay, they gave me this job. Do they know that I'm not that good at this? Like, do they, can they tell? Do they know? Can they see that I'm like just questioning every single thing that I do? And like, I don't feel like I deserve to be in the room. Right. And so oftentimes I'm acting from a place of desperation where I'll, I'll take any job that I can get, even though it's not paying me what I deserve to be paid. Right. And and it's only like, you know, I'm 30, how old am I? 36. I'm 36. <laughs> it's like taken like the last 35 years for me to be like, no, I'm sorry. I cannot do this job for you because I would rather go work on my podcast or mm. I would rather go watch Lucifer on Netflix. You know, like I've got mm. other things that I would rather be doing that yeah. like, you know, that thing of like valuing your time yeah. and like getting out of that habit of just being someone for hire basically a body for hire yeah 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 I got you I feel you um yeah I the inner dialogue is like a big thing I think there's a few things coming out of that of, of your yeah. experience there um have there been jobs where you have been paid your worth and you've you've come out of that experience even though you've had imposter syndrome you came out of that experience and you were like yeah that was like a win on so many levels I think that I it's it's sort of like I it, a voice go, it goes around and around and I think yeah that was awesome I did great like I did exactly what I intended to do and then that sort of scarcity thing comes in where I'm like is it am I going to get it again like are they going to hire me again is this opportunity going to come up again so it's like it's a lot of 
a lot of internal fighting in yeah, my brain yeah, yeah, yeah. all the time. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. Do you... Is that you like, because like you have so much work to do and so many roles to play. Like I imagine, you know, dealing with anxiety and depression, like you can't just stay in bed. Like you have to get up and do it. So what, like, what are the things that you do to get yourself up and going and out of that slump? Yeah, yeah I, had, I had that slump for many years, actually. And even when I hosted The Voice for the first two seasons, I had that inner dialogue that I was absolutely worthless. But that was rooted in homophobia for me and I could f- figure out where that came from because I feel like my underlying sense of self is like I value myself and I know that even though I'm still learning on the job, I'm always learning on the job. I'm just trying to finesse my skills and just try and like get it done in that window of time. And, um, uh, but um, I feel that with anxiety now, I've been able to get over anxiety because I took a, I read this book from this amazing woman who I feel like will have a great impact in the way that Oprah has had an impact on the world. And her name is Mel Robbins um, and not related to Tony. Um, uh, she's just this incredible human being that has been able to explain very simply how our brains think and how our anxiety loops happen. And so she created this thing when she she suffered really like crippling anxiety herself for a very long time and postpartum depression um, after her first daughter was born. Um, and she has this incredible um, tool called the five second rule. She says, whenever you have an instinct to act on a goal, you must physically move within five seconds or your brain will kill the idea. So, so within that five seconds, right? You know all the sorts of things that you were saying within your head, right? Um, Even within the five seconds, you actually have to just, like, tell your brain a new story. So she has this new tool called, this other tool called Think This, Not That. So when you think, like, I've got imposter syndrome. I even had a bit of that even today when I was doing post-audio for this um, episode for Harrow because it was my first time doing it and I was in a satellite studio in Byron Bay beaming back over to Brisbane to the actual production crew in Brisbane you know I wasn't saying the lines right and I wasn't hitting the same tone and the right you know and 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 the right speed and all this sort of stuff um I just told myself to like breathe and then like I just was was like there was a thought like no I deserve this the roles are like the the you know the thing's been shot it's in the can I just need to say a few lines and get the fuck out of this studio (laughs) you know what I mean like just get it fucking done um you know and so I you know she has this thing called think this not that so when you think those sorts of things like you know I'm worthless I'm imposter why the fuck did they hire me will they will you know will I be exposed just go no I've been hired I'm awesome at my job we're all here to grow together. No one is perfect, right? There could be a, an, an internal tone of perfectionism there where, you know, you want to get everything right and perfect and you don't need to, right? Like, you know, that's your own kind of barometer of, of self-worth there or what you think should be perfect and just get the job done. And so I, you know, when I, last year, I didn't have like the kind of inner dialogue anymore of, 
you know, um, lesbian users are pejorative towards me. Like that sort of stuff used to trigger me a lot, but I just had this overall filmic feeling of just like feeling shit. Like I was just like, I really love my life and my jobs and everything. Why am I not showing up and being super present for things? And why am I, you know, attacking these sorts of projects that I'm being asked to do like really, really late and submitting things late and, you know, and being triggered all the time. So instead of feeling gross, so what I did was I pre-planned all the things that I could, all the areas in my life that I could get triggered. Instead of thinking or feeling this, I would always tell myself that I'm awesome. And so within that five seconds, if I feel something like somebody gives me a call last minute for a job, actually this happened last year, it was to MC a, a, a product, um, like a like a new product that was being released in Australia, which was popular in the States. And they were paying, they could only offer like half of my usual corporate rate. And I had this feeling of like low self-worth when I heard the rate over the phone. But then I was like, there's nothing else I'm going to do tomorrow. I might as well fly to Melbourne and just host this bloody job, you know, and just get it done. So then I just said, sure. Instead of having this inner dialogue of they don't value me, they're not this, they're not that, you know what I mean? And because it was still good money, right? And so I flew over there. Um, by then I had, you know, it only took me two days to do the think this, not that scenario. And then I got into this healthy habit of thinking by the end of the second day, my mind was completely clear. I was flabbergasted. I could not believe that I'd gotten rid of that toxic feeling and those, and that, that those toxic kind of, kind of abstract thoughts that were going through my mind. And I was completely present in my day. And like, it was like the world instantly became friendlier. And everything looked a lot more beautiful. And any interaction that I would have with the person that could have been triggering to a previous sense of me was no longer the case for me. I could just go, that's your thing and that's on you. And then I could just run with my day. So there definitely was this line in the sand that was pre-Mel Robbins and after, after getting the Mel Robbins course, which was just reading the book and also within the first week of doing her online course in April last year, I've just gone from there to there. It's, it's incredible. We need to get onto that. Oh, she's got this and it's, it's offered for free now. So I paid like 600 us to do this course, this online course that went for like eight or 12 weeks um, with this closed Facebook group. But now she has like a free version. It's not ex- precisely that cause you don't get coached Oh, no, you get coached by her every day via YouTube. Like, you know, you watch these videos um, on YouTube most days. And it's called Mindset Reset. So it's like melrobbins.com slash Mindset Reset. And it's it's pretty much the same material, not exact, but it's like similar material than what I um, took back in April, which was a different kind of course. as a paid course. But, um, yeah, so, yeah, there are times when I feel like, well, this really sucks because I'm getting paid less but I know that the long-term gain if I can see the long-term gain as in this is more money to my bank account or this is um a good thing generally for the CV or to make connections or I get to fly to Melbourne and hang out with some friends or whatever like there's a few other reasons or if I can negotiate like with jobs if the budget is only so much cash then I can add other things on top of it in terms of contra if it's tickets or if it's opportunities or things down the line then it's you know I'm just like I'll just do the job because it's 
because otherwise my self-worth just drops and drops and drops. Um, but obviously, like there aren't, um, if something is a real opportunity cost to me, then I won't take it. Um, yeah, so there was this one job that I was asked to, so I, when I got the offer for Harrow, a director that worked on a Harrow was then working on another television show, which would have been a very good in to the US if I, if, you know, I gotten the role. <clears throat> But I had found out through the industry that, there, you know, on set there's somebody that's quite abusive and, um, you know, there's a lot of workplace bullying happening and I, and it was coming up from high up, so there's not a lot of, there's not really a check and balance in place for this particular person. And I just knew I've worked so hard on my mental health. I've worked so hard to get rid of toxic people in my life. I'm like, I'm not about to enter another opportunity just because this episode's going to air in the US and, yeah. you know, you know, I'm just like, I think that opportunity cost, even though it could have been a gain, the cost is too high for me, my my soul and spirit. So, yeah. Last question, important yeah. one. How's the wife hunt going? Oh, the wife hunt, lol. Uh, you know what? There's no one in sight right now. I don't know how you two met. That'd be a very interesting story if you did tell me that. Um, you can tell me. We'll have to tell you all the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, there's no one in my vicinity yet that is a wife option. <laughs> Not that I'm aware of anyway. But um, I am really enjoying living in my own skin, being in my own skin and... Um, yeah, I'm I'm really happy with myself. I think this is the first time in my life where, you know, you know, obviously life isn't perfect. It it never is 100% perfect, but I am very happy within myself and I do I yes, I go through the motions. Yes, I still get PMS. I do have days where I feel like shit. But there's uh, you know, um it I don't feel like it's a really interesting situation. I'm no longer at this position where I feel like having a girlfriend or a wife is the thing that's going to fulfill me or complete my life. It's a yeah. very separate idea now where it's just like, who can I be with that can enhance, can we enhance each, each other's lives together? And yeah, so I still yet to meet that person and that's okay. And so I'm just going to take my time. Yeah, we're enjoying the updates and and the funny little search things on social media very much. <laughs> you've been doing something that I am I'm terrified to do. Um, you've been surfing. Oh yeah, I love it. It's the yeah, best. I need to I need to conquer my fear of the ocean. Which is, I should because I'm in a country surrounded by it. Um, yeah. yeah, I really need to get over it yeah. <laughs> soon. I'm from New York. We don't go surfing. Like we oh. go to the, you know, we go hang out with friends in a park. Like there's no surfing happening. Right, 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 right. Well, you know, I don't know. I feel like, I don't know. I feel expanded every time. Like I see a surfer or sur like anything related to surfing. So I'm just, I'm definitely just following my bliss here. So I think it, it, um, you know, it counteracts any kind of like minute fear of, I don't know what I'd be afraid of rocks and um, sharkies. But if it's my time, it's my time, which is awful. 
but you know what I mean? I'm just like, it's a very violent way to go. And yeah, yeah, cool. like, the sharky bit. And but like the chances are pretty slim. So yeah. I I yeah, I think I love surfing too much. And plus I I mean like if you see it, if you see some of the beaches, especially in like Queensland or northern New South Wales, like there's a lot of family friendly beaches where you can see through the ocean, you can't, you know, like it's, it's fine. Like you can see pretty deep down and it's, and there's lots of people around you. So there's a lot of other shark bait options out there. Great. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's really, like a really good way to look at it. Yes. Yeah, so just put yourself, like I always put myself like in the middle, like surrounded by other options and then I just surf. So um, like, that's, that's the way that I life hack that. <laughs> yeah. That's probably maybe the last thing that we can say and then we can probably let you go. Um, we have so many more questions so many more. we don't I feel want like, you to miss your flight. <laughs> I feel like um, like when I'm feeling imposter syndrome, I'm just going to, like, I had an issue with, like, asking for a certain amount of money and Casey was like, what would a mediocre white man do? And I was like, right, that's my new motto. What would a mediocre white dude do? He would just record it and just not even think about the consequences. Yeah. So, so you're, I'm, I'm finding this interesting. So you're, cause I do negotiate too. Like if somebody comes in with a rate, then I'll be like, well, it's this rate. And then there's a, there might be a back and forth or whatever. Have you ever like counted off, counter offered? Only recently. I've only yeah. just now started going, Hey, okay, this is actually what, you know, here's what all the other colorists and I have talked about. We've all agreed that we're going to stick around the same number because we don't want to undercut each other. Like, here's what it is. So I've just gone, yeah. But that's that's a recent thing. That's, you know, normally I've just been like, yeah, I'll take whatever you know, whatever pittance you'll set you. Yeah, because, yeah, that job is, like, not easy and it's, and it's so valued. So um, it's definitely something that you should kind of stick to. Your um, principles on, um, and have so you think that like people have said that, like, do you realize that your reel is intimidating? Like, yeah. that's what people in the industry have said to her, but it's just, that's awesome, yeah, yeah, it's a great, it's a great compliment, but yeah, it's just the letting that compliment sink in down to the core and being like, yes, that what they said is right, your reel is awesome, and you're good at your job, yeah. That's awesome. Like, like imagine like all the opportunities and money that will come your way just like when you just like allow it, allow Mm. all this in. Like that's huge. That's huge. Like what's your dream? Like what is your dream goal like in your career? Uh, Well, in my career, like if I could get paid to just do this podcast and take, take color work and editing work when I wanted to, like what projects really felt good to me, that would be great. Like working in television, like long form would be awesome because I love TV, like obsessively love television. Um, yeah, I think that's, yeah, I don't know. That's a, that's a loaded question. But not work all the time. Not work Have all the time. time for travel. Yeah, because we've also, we've got a kid, so, like, we want to be able to, you know, if he's learning about Spain, I want to be able to go, let's just hop on a plane, we're going to go to Spain for a month, and we're going to learn about Spain now. Um, so, I don't, yeah. I don't want to work. I, I, I don't want to have a job. I want to do work, if that makes sense. Yeah. 
Yeah. And you, Casey? Spend as much time exploring the world as possible and then working in a way that allows me to impact others mm. in a big way. I want to do something. I really only want to do things that are fulfilling. Yeah. So I'm working on doing um, like a coaching course now. Awesome. I've been quite a lot of shitty experiences, so I know yeah. for pretty well how to get myself out of Probably for several things. lifetimes. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We kind of both want to only do work that's, like, fulfilling and uplifting to people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. We love having conversations and difficult conversations and, yeah. Yeah. Like, I want to talk to some right-wing liberal Australian and, like, you know, talk to someone who's homophobic and kind of get their, their view on things and try to understand them and, you know, maybe have a have a, a chat with someone from across the table and i think yeah. that's probably i think a lot of the turmoil that's happening in the states and and here with the recent election results um a lot of people on that side don't feel like they're heard and i think that's probably the the biggest barrier that's getting in the way yeah, yeah. people not feeling like they're heard yeah yeah that's a really good point um and i did podcast so i do remember you bringing this up oh did you listen to it oh that's yeah. good <laughs> thank you yeah um yeah. you've got really good points and you know what i feel like um there can be a lot of commonalities like once you actually listen to the other side you do yeah. want similar things maybe the approach might be slightly different but like how do you find that union yeah. point, that communion yeah, yeah that where we can do that while preserving the environment and also like looking <laughs> yes. and, and you know just like looking towards future generations so that they actually have like a healthy planet to live on um yeah, yeah rather than like this is mine and that is yours and um living in a fear-based society again yeah yeah it's like that that fear it's like it feels like you know we're kind of doing that on the same side like I just kind of sometimes want to cull everybody on Facebook that doesn't agree with me on absolutely right. everything and just filter bubble but yeah. I just don't think that that's going to get us Very to true. where we want to go it's not it's not going to allow me to grow mm. um yeah it's just it's not going to create communion and like unity within the world yeah. so I'm trying to do the scary thing. Yeah, it's hard to have community if you're not communicating. <gasps> oh, true. And also, you know, like if someone is you know, maybe deliberately or not deliberately, like if it's causing you pain, like that's when you know that there's a boundary and you need to kind of step away. Um, and that's how it is for me. So I haven't really actively engaged in a lot of a dialogue. Like I just kind of stayed offline. <laughs> <laughs> what it was like because I was just I just thought whatever the outcome is for this election like you know the same struggles are still there um and yes some significant change can happen if you do have a particular kind of government for sure for sure but I think what's happened in the last four years is that individuals have realized their own power yeah. and grassroots and there have been so many grassroots groups that have stemmed from that so um that's the arena that I am playing in because there is you know I feel like if I'm adding to this cacophony of voices about the political 
like you know level I, I I don't know my my use is is I just know where I can lean into my particular strengths you know and my particular strengths are storytelling and um and sharing stories of where people can connect and hopefully also opening up more dialogue around the identities in which I touch that I intersect in that might help inform other people that don't have those or don't identify with those particular identities um so yeah I mean I admire that you're willing to rumble with people that literally sit on an, on the opposite side of the political spectrum that's really cool um and we haven't done it yet <laughs> yeah, we'll see how it goes it can yeah. be really triggering but it could yeah. be really good so well that's cool that you game and you know it's good that you know you're willing to to go there yeah I think I know what my strengths are which is just like living in the lane that I have been in and maximizing on yeah. <laughs> that yeah. I think I know. Yeah, I think that I think I know that I can't. I really play in that arena myself. So okay, okay, cool. At least I know. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for chatting with us. Yeah. Thank you. We know we know all your social media stuff, but where can people find you online? Um, if you just look up Faustina the Fuzz, you will find me on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. Um, and I think, and if you're gay, um, a woman, get on the her app maybe and put it on a global setting and maybe we can find each other and we can wife each other. <laughs> we'll try to set up a criteria. We'll try to keep an eye yeah. out for you. Yeah. yeah, cool. I'll probably, yeah, I'll put up a criteria. <laughs> yeah.